0: Chapter 12 of the book of Romans is the place of our text and it is verses 10 through 13. Romans 12:10 through 13. Verse 10 Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, Uh, the Revised Standard has it, never lag in zeal, be aglow with the Spirit, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints practicing hospitality. And Psalm 34, 5 says, Those who look to him are radiant in their faces, and they are never covered with shame. The formula for a radiant face. In Winter's Tale, Act 1, Scene 2, Shakespeare has... The king of Bohemia believed a suspicious plot of his host when told him because he remembered his look of enmity in his face and said, I saw his heart in his face. Most of the time you can tell what a person is, is in his heart by looking at his face. That's why your mother always knew when you did something wrong, when you as a kid. I never could figure that out. I thought she had a spy network. You know, my sister told her. But it's hard to keep out of your face what's in your heart. What, we're, what we are in outward appearance betrays what we are in inner conscience. And so Gilbert Stuart took one look at Talleyrand, the uh, Prime Minister of France, and said, if that man is not a scoundrel, then God does not write with a legible hand. The face is an index of the character. And so one of his advisors said to Lincoln, begged Lincoln to put one of his friends, one of the advisor's friends on the cabinet, And Lincoln said, why, I don't like that man's face. And the advisor said, well, the poor fellow is not responsible for his face. And Lincoln said, every man over 40 is responsible for his face. And so he comes to the end, as Paul, of chapter 11. And he's just finished one of the most amazing treatments of theology you'll find written anywhere. And when he finishes this great theological piece, he moves from the theological to the ethical and the practical. And he's saying, in essence, on the basis of this, this is how you ought to live. Every believer ought to be radiant with God. Every believer ought to have the effulgence of God The vibrance of God, the radiance of God shining in his face. And he gives the formula for a radiant face. And this is it. I'll give you the formula, and then if you want to check out on me, you can. I hope you hang around for the rest of the show. The formula for a radiant face. Rejoice in hope. Patience in tribulation devoted to prayer and committed to serving others. Rejoice in hope, one of the most distinguishing characteristics of a believer is joy. Now it's, it's not happiness I'm talking about, it goes deeper than that. Happiness is based upon circumstances and surroundings. It comes from the root word hap, which means chance. And if things are going our way and we have we're lucky, you know, and everything is agreeable with us, we're happy. But joy goes far beyond happiness. In fact, it's often found in the confusion and in the chaos and change and disturbance and loss that causes people to be unhappy. And happiness is rooted in Uh, Joy is rooted in Christian hope. Now that word, something happened to it on the way from the Bible to us, and it's lost a lot of its meaning. It's faded by the light of time. It doesn't mean that I'm going to cross my fingers and hope it turns out all right. Hope in the biblical sense is the happy, is the joyful anticipation and expectation of good. It's the belief, it's the conviction that God holds today and tomorrow. And we can expect and anticipate an inward blessing regardless of the outward circumstances. Hope, based on hope, is this joy. And the interesting thing about hope is that it's self-fulfilling. Paul says that we're saved by hope. What he means by that is that we help ourselves physically and emotionally and every other way as long as we have hope. And Lewis Evans paints a graphic illustration of it by telling us about a man who was uh, struck down on the battlefield and he, was, he couldn't move and he couldn't talk. He was mortally wounded. And he saw in the darkness of the night men coming with lights to him and he knew that they were coming to help him. He couldn't speak, couldn't move. And he heard one of the men say, I think if, we can, if he can just last to morning so we can get him out of here, we can save him. And so in the night he turned his eyes in the direction of the rising of the sun and he thought, if I can just make it through the night, I can make it. And he thought of his, his wife at home and his children and he thought, if I can just make it through the night, I'll feel their hands on my face again. I'll feel her arms around me again. And as Lewis Evans said, and the great God in Christ reached down from the sky and with a hand that was pierced, caressed that fading life and held it to the rise of the dawn. You tell a sick person there's no hope and you hasten his death. You tell a child he is hopeless and you'll have an inferiority complex and a wretched child on your hand. You tell a person there's hope for you, and miracles begin to happen. Don't give up, for the child of God rejoices in the happy anticipation of the good things that are just around the corner. By the way, each one of these elements of the formula builds to the next. So the next is patient in tribulation. Now patience is not one of our shining virtues, not mine at least. If you like to read that little segment in Reader's Digest, Life in these United States, you may have seen a while back about the lady whose car had a, her car broke down and busy traffic in a big city at a stoplight. And she got out and did all she knew to do. She raised the hood. And she looked inside at the motor as though looking would help. And she stood staring at the motor while the guy behind her in heavy traffic was laying down on his horn. You know how that goes, impatient. And so she, after a while, she walked around and leaned over and looked into the window and said to the impatient guy behind her, I'll tell you what I'll do. If you'll get out and fix my car, I'll take your place and blow your horn. We can all identify with that. There's so much, so much stress, so so many delays, and so many deadlines. No wonder we look the way we look in our face. Now that word, tribulation. Notice that it is in patience, patience in the sphere of tribulation. That's an interesting word. Watch this word. The word literally means to press out. It's the picture of the pressing of the grape until all the juice is gone. And so life has a way of pressing out all the juice. And a man called Charles Allen when he was pastor of First United Methodist Church in Houston and said, this morning I got up and I squeezed an orange and drank the juice. And I thought as I looked at the rind and the pulp, that's the way I am. Life has squeezed out of me all the joy. Call it burnout if you like. Look that word up in the dictionary, burn, and it means burning until all the fuel is exhausted and the fire ceases. For some of you, you know what that means. Life has squeezed all the joy out, and all the fuel is exhausted, and the fire has ceased. Calvin Miller has a great little book entitled The Table of Inwardness. And he tells that one day somebody gave him a 19th-century antique dynamite box. He said it is a big old antique box. But on the top of it he said, just barely legible, you could still read in bold print, danger, dynamite. But he said, now it was filled with all the paraphernalia of my kid's toy room. Said Calvin Miller, we were designed to be containers of the power of God. And now we are filled with the world's trivia and we've lost the joy. Tribulation was something these early Christians knew a lot about. They knew suffering and persecution of every kind. And some of you understand tribulation. And you have begged and you have pleaded for some help from somewhere. But all the juice of life is squeezed. So there's nothing left but the pulp. How are you patient in the midst of that? We're talking about learning to wait upon God. That's what that means, patience, waiting on God. The word weight means tautness or tension. It's like the tautness of a rope. So that if you saw a rope hanging and you could only see the middle of it and you saw that it was taut and tense, you would assume there was something hanging on the end of it. When Isaiah said they... We skirted around that in my Sunday school class. How do you learn to wait on God and how long do you wait on him? And the conclusion that we arrived at in my Sunday school class was we don't know how you do that. But a part of it means waiting on God in the midst of tribulation begins with a belief that God takes the tribulation and the circumstances and he makes it work for our good. And so Stuart says, they have preserved in Bedford, England the door that was shut on John Bunyan. For 12 years, that door was shut on him in Bedford Jail. For 12 years, he prayed for its opening. And when people would come to him and say, Bunyan, you have a responsibility to your 12-year-old blind daughter. Recant your faith and get out of here. And for 12 years, he waited. Why was it 12 years? Well, somehow in the midst of that 12 years of tribulation, God was farming in the mind of John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. And when that work was completed, that door swung open. Breeden Lane has written an article entitled Fierce Landscapes and the Indifference of God. And the first sentence in that marvelous article is this. Listen, we are saved by the things that ignore us. And the thesis of the article is how redemption messages have come out of the most fierce landscapes, out of the pits and the caves and the wildernesses of life. And out of these troubles and pain, out of this pain, has come the songs of of redemption and the sobs of the gospel. It says, breathe and lame, If you learn to wait on God, out of the tribulation will come the song of deliverance. Patient and tribulation devoted to prayer notice it's devoted fervent in the King James or New, New American Standard it means devoted to it committed to it I heard about this ir- irreligious seaman who was caught in a storm and he was being knocked around in his vessel and he decided well things are bad enough to pray I mean, it's that desperate. If you can't do anything about it, better pray. So he, he prayed this prayer. Lord, you know it's been 15 years since I asked you to do anything for me. If you'll get me out of this storm, I promise you, I'll not bother you for another 15 years. Just get me, get me out of here. Now, I'm not talking about that kind of praying. I'm talking about people who are devoted to prayer. It's what Paul was talking about when he said, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. You mean the little things of life, you pray about everything. For if it's big enough to cause anxiety, it's big enough to pray about, it's big enough to take to God. And what happens when we're devoted to prayer is is that it changes us some of the circumstances may not change, 12 years in Bedford jail, some of the circumstances may not change drastically, but all of a sudden those who, have been, who are devoted to prayer, the, the focus is moved from the, from the anxiety to the Almighty, from the problem to the power, and we're changed. And Spurgeon said, people who pray can never be overcome. Let me paraphrase that a little bit. People who are devoted to prayer have the radiance of God on their face. McDonald's tells about in his book the time that William Osler, who perhaps is one of the greatest physicians of this century, went into a children's hospital. And he saw a little girl sitting over in the corner, just alone, all the other kids were over playing and whatever. And she was sitting over in a corner clutching a little doll. And he asked the head nurse, he said, What about that child over there? And she said, Oh, her mother died. And her father came has come to visit her one time. And he brought this little doll. And she holds it, clutches it day and night. And so William Osler, this great uh, at one time was a, was a counselor, a, a, a psychologist. This, this, this great man said loud, loudly enough for the other kids to hear, well, hello, honey, I've been looking for you. I've been waiting to come by and see you. So the other girls, boys would hear. And he went over to where she was sitting in the corner and he, and he began to talk to her kind of whisper so, that, so the other kids would be curious but wouldn't know what was going on. And they had this little conversation going on over there. And he said, he'd tell her, he said, now, now, sweetheart, I'm going to tell you a secret. Don't you tell anybody our secret? And they just had this wonderful conversation for about 15 minutes. Then he got up. All eyes were focused on him and the little girl. And he said, Well, honey, I'm looking forward to coming back. Now don't you tell anybody our secret. And when he walked out the door, he looked back. And he saw this face light up like the sun. He saw all these little kids gathering around this child in envy. And he said, Ah, isn't it amazing that in these secret places one person can restore one's passion for life. Do you have a secret place Do you have a place where you meet with God? Calvin Miller calls it the table of inwardness. Do you have a place where you meet with God? I want you to turn quickly. There's a psalm that's been on my heart. We were talking about it um, Wednesday night. The 63rd Psalm. 63rd Psalm. I'm glad I hear you turning. I want you to look at this. Psalm 63, found it. O God, Thou art my God, I shall seek Thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for Thee. Look, it's, it's this seeking God, not seeking what God has. It's not seeking His peace. his blessing seeking him I'm looking for that secret place where somebody can restore my passion for life that's what I need my soul thirsts for thee my flesh yearns for thee in a dry and weary land where there is no water thus I have beheld thee in the sanctuary now I want to show you four places where this man met God, or four ways he described this secret place or these places where he met with God. He calls it first his sanctuary. Now when the psalmist wrote this, he was was in flight, he was running. Some suggest that he was in flight from Saul. I believe he was running from from Absalom, his own son. And he came down, the scripture says in 2 Samuel, he came wearily to the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. In flight from God, where there is no sanctuary, the only place where there was a sanctuary was in Jerusalem. In flight from God, he said, I met him in the sanctuary. You know where that sanctuary was? It was in the quietness of his own heart. There is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God, a place where sin cannot molest near to the heart of God. My friend, you need a place where you can get in sanctuary with God. Second, verse 6, when I remember thee on my bed, I meditate on thee in the night watches. Second place where he met God was at night in his bed when he couldn't sleep. Now here's this man hiding in the caves Familiar were the sounds around him of danger and death. But in these nights on his bed, he thought of God. He communed with him. He says, for thou hast been my help, and in the shadow of thy wings I sing for joy. And it's the picture, third, it's the picture of a hen who gathers her chicks under her wing, a place of protection like these men have sung about already. Number four, my soul clings to thee, my right hand upholds me, in his hand I place mine. Devoted to prayer. Now folks, only that person who is devoted to prayer can have an experience like that. Fourth formula for a happy face, radiant face, is to practice hospitality. Said, show generosity. I believe that one of the most dangerous things that is happening to us in our time is the is the matter of isolation. I believe one of the most potent killers of our day is this isolationism. This thing that separates me from you and us from them. And with a subtle, with a subtlety, Satan has devised a scheme to minimize humanity, and the way he's done it is to separate us from one another. Dr. Engelbright reminded us this week in Kiwanis that the only thing that you can see with the naked eye from a satellite is the great wall. The only man-made thing on earth that you can see with the naked eye from a satellite is the great wall. Might be a parable of life that the most observable thing about our world is the thing that separates us from one another. And so Drummond says, that if you had picked out one word to describe the joy of Jesus it would be the word otherism otherism if you've got how, how, if you've got uh, max lucato's book the eye of the storm he describes one day in the life of Jesus he gets up one morning and word comes to him that John the Baptist has been murdered has been executed his cousin, the man who pointed him out as the Lamb of God, his heart must have been broken. Can I get alone with my sorrow? He must have fought. But all of a sudden, here come these disciples that he'd sent out, 70 of them, two by two, and they come rushing into the presence of Jesus, and they're all excited about what they've experienced, and they've got to tell him about it. And so Jesus decides, let's get alone for a little while, and all of a sudden they see people coming down out of the hills, says Max Lucado, as many as 25,000 of them coming down out of the hills, men and women and children, and they're hungry and they don't have anything to eat. Can I get alone a little while to be with my grief? Can I get alone a little bit to deal with my own sorrow? 25,000 hungry people there. And finally he says to his disciples loudly enough for the crowd to hear let's get in a boat and go on the other over on the other side and they got on a boat and headed across the sea of galilee to the other side but the word had already gotten out about jesus so they came from the city of tiberias and they walked all the way around the lake the northeast edge of that lake was a six mile journey and when he got across the lake surprise there they were and said maxwell cato There never was a time when Jesus did not have time for others. And he never turned anybody away. You know what's wrong with your face? You have no compassion for others. You can tell a man's character by three things what he allows to interrupt him what he has time for and on what does he spend his money and so a little girl came down the stairs to breakfast and she said to her mother mother are you happy And she said, yes, I am happy, honey. And she said, well, you haven't told your face. And so Lincoln said, every man over 40 is responsible for his face. Let's pray together. Our Father... I pray for a change in our heart. That there might be the evidence in our life. And Lord, we know, we believe, that when the heart is changed, that people will be attracted and drawn to the changer. Lord, I pray for the need that exists in this room today, in congregation and in clergy, for a changed heart. Heart of joy, patience, devoted to prayer, committed to ministry. I pray this in the name of Jesus our Lord. There are three invitations. There's an invitation this morning for you to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. You don't have to have another testimony. You've had enough evidence that Jesus is the life changer to that person who will permit Him to be. Would you commit this morning your heart to Jesus Christ, your life to Him, to become a follower of His, to trust Him with your eternal soul? I want to ask you to get up out of your seat and come trusting Jesus Christ, placing your faith on Him. Or perhaps as a Christian, you need to come to recommit your life to a life of faith and trust. Not more business, more faith and trust. Or maybe you need to join this church. We invite you to come. We beg you. We urge you. on the basis of this. We ask you to respond for Jesus' sake while we stand and sing.